Thanks for listening to the Northridge Christian Podcast. At Northridge, we exist to help people move closer to Christ. We believe that following Jesus is a journey, and we want to help you through that journey any way we can. We pray that you grow in your walk with God through this message today. So prepare your heart and mind for this teaching by our college pastor, Jonathan DeJesus. Good morning. All right, show of hands, how many of you are ready for Christmas? Okay, how many of you are not? I feel that deep. I am not. Sorry, babe, I promise the gift is coming. Uh, And if anything, I am the gift, so. um, (laughs) Thought you'd like that. Look, I, I love Christmas. I love this time of the year. I love everything about it. I love the, the gifts, the family, the traditions. I love the music, but I have kind of one of these uh, hate-love relationships with the music. I kind of like the traditional ones, you know, the ones that point me to Jesus. And then there's one in particular that I really dislike. It kind of starts like this. He's coming to town. You know what I'm talking about? You better watch out. You better not what? You better not what? Why? Santa coming to town, yeah. I dislike that song so deeply. For this line, ready? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so what? Ah, yeah, I knew you'd know that song. I don't like that song. Because it's attributing to Santa something that only God can do. Only God can see you when you're sleeping. Only God knows when you're awake. Only God knows the good or bad you've done. And it's not so much the song. I'm fine. That's fine. We can listen to it. But David said this in Psalms 139 verse 2. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You see, only God has this ability. And what, what really bothers me is that we teach this song to our kids. We teach it as if it's truth to say, hey, don't do that because you know why? Santa's watching. But yet we neglect to do that about God. Look, I'm going in fast, Sorry. We neglect to do that about God. We neglect to tell our kids, look, what you do is always, in fact, in the presence of God daily. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows what you are doing when you are awake. He knows what you're doing when you close the door. He knows what you're doing when you close the blinds. He sees it all. You see, today we're closing our series out um, called Playlist on the Psalms, which is a collection of songs, hymns, and prayers to God. The great monk reformer Martin Luther said this about the Psalms. He said, the Psalms are like a garden. There is beauty in the garden. The garden has a variety of shapes, colors, and fragrance. And I don't know about you, but, but this series has been that for me. It has been a beautiful garden to see the beauty of the different Psalms that we have walked through. And just like the Psalms, I love, again, how this season brings joy. It helps you to find or rekindle the joy that you had, that this season, for some reason, the moment we get to the end of the year and Christmas is around the corner, yeah, we get a little crazy because we have to catch up and we have to do so much, but we also find joy and we remember why this season matters. 
But what if, what if this season is more about the essential core truth we share in our faith more so than the traditions we share as a culture? What if this season has more to do with the reality of our world, the broken and darkness, and how that darkness and brokenness is being driven out by the beauty of light and the simple yet profound reality of Emmanuel, God with us? Switzerland, Geneva, the, the, the country has a saying that I find so beautiful. Ready? Post tenemboro spero lexium. No, that's not a Harry Potter curse, that's Latin. It literally means, after darkness, I hope for light. And man, is that not what Jesus is? The hope, the light of our darkness, the hope and light that we have in this season? You see, I want to help spark a holy imagination for both the saint and the sinner. I want us to look at a psalm written by David after one of his most darkest moments in his life because I want us to understand that our happiness, that our blessedness, our joy, as David puts it, put, is, is, is ultimately rooted in what we all seek, forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the greatest blessings you and I receive from God. The God who knows all of us, all of our sins, all of our brokenness, is willing to forgive that sin because of what he's done for us. You see, having your sins forgiven is the greatest gift you can receive. When God forgives you, he wipes the record clean of all of it. My sermon in a sentence is simple. Forgiveness is a gift God is offering you. Forgiveness is a gift God is offering you. Today, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 32. And let me give you a little background as you turn there. You see, this psalm is a very important psalm because it is rooted in a different psalm. Psalm 32 was written out of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's most famous psalm of repentance. It is when he slept with Bathsheba. It is when he ultimately broke a home up, literally. It is when he sent a man to die because he lusted over the wife of another man. Psalm 32 must be read with this story of David and Bathsheba in the back of our mind because what happens is that David tried to hide his sin. But guess what? You can't hide your sin from God. And so then he's confronted by the prophet and he says, look, what have you done? And then he realizes his wickedness and he says, look, God, I promise that I will teach others of this. I will teach transgressors your ways and, I will, and, and sinners will return to you that I, I repent and I come to you. And so he writes Psalm 32 as him fulfilling his promise to God. Got that? And then... The title of this psalm is called The Maskell of David, which literally means to instruct. So not only does he write the psalm, but he literally entitles, this is an instruction to you from David. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 32. It said, blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is a constant reminder of how good you are, how amazing you are to us despite our brokenness. Lord, thank you for this word. May it open our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. My first takeaway for today is this. Forgiveness is a gift. You see, David declares the blessing of forgiveness. It is literally the heart of this psalm. The word bless stands out because he only used it another time, which was in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, in the introductory psalms. And at the end of that, he uses the same word. In fact, this is the first time the word blessed is used since that psalm. And so David is indicating, look, there is a blessing for you here. But David does something that I think is so beautiful. Psalm 1, he says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. David begins Psalm 1 by literally setting the bar. Who is like this person? Who can walk in, in the ways of the wicked and not be tempted by it? Guess what? Sorry to break it to you. It's not us. It's not you and me. What David is doing is David is pointing to the Christ. He opens his Psalms by saying, look, only Jesus is the perfect man. Only Jesus can do these things. You cannot. But then he writes Psalm 32 and says, guess what? I have a Psalm for you. I have a psalm for you, imperfect men and women. I have a psalm for you because it's going to come with a package gift called blessing, called forgiveness, called Jesus Christ has come for you and me. Amen? Amen. See, this, this, psalm, this psalm reminds me of the beauty that we and I, you and I should have, of the, the joy that you and I should have on our faces the moment we leave our house, the moment we wake up, the moment we lie down, because it reminds us of the truths of the gospel. It reminds us that we are imperfect beings. And so David starts Psalm 32 like this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look, when, when something in the Bible, quick pause, when something in the Bible is repeated, pay attention. Okay? Make sense? Yes? If it's repeated, what? Pay attention. Okay? So David said, blessed is the man, right? Blessed is the man. Repeats twice. Guess what? David is saying, look, there is a double blessing. There is a double promise of blessing if you understand what I'm talking about. 
He says, look, blessed is the man. Now, this word blessed is good, but also can be very tempting because a very, very good translation of this word means happy. And so we can translate this very verse to how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. How happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This is the joy of knowing that God is for you. That you should be filled up, welled up with joy and and happiness because you understand that the creator of the universe doesn't count your sin against you. The blessing, this gift, is not a partial gift. It's not a gift that says, hey, here's one piece, the next piece will come in a year but rather it is all the pieces right then and there. You see, David and the Bible ultimately uses a dozen words for sin, and David uses three of them right here. So let me, let me point this out real quick. David uses three words, transgressions, sins, and iniquities, right off the bat. The word transgression has to do with rebellion. God created us in his image and wanted us to live as his representatives, but we rebelled against God. Sin has to do with missing the mark. Think of an archer when he pulls back the bow and all of a sudden he shoots and it just hits the ground. Or think of me on the golf course. Yeah, me on the golf course. As I get ready to line up a shot to hit onto the green and I end up in the woods like I always do. We miss the mark. Or lastly, the last word, iniquity, which means the crookedness and perversion or waywardness. It, it means that we are guilty and should be punished because we intentionally sin. So what is David saying? He is saying we have rebelled against the almighty God. We have fallen short of the mark. We are crooked, perverse, and guilty before God. What is he doing? He is describing the human condition. But the most important thing isn't the nature of sin, but rather the words that he connects with those sin. David uses three other words, forgiven, covered, does not count. He says literally that the first word, forgiven means literally to lift and carry away the burden that's been on you that you could not lift. Covered, he's talking about atonement, about what Christ has done on the cross for you. And then he says that he doesn't count it. This is a bookkeeping word, which means he doesn't keep record of your wrongs. When God forgives, he does not charge our sin to our account. Think of it like this. If you max out the credit card, which some of you right now are probably thinking, man, I shouldn't have spent that much money. And you got the bill back and it said paid in full. Our sin is removed from God's ledger. And his spreadsheet is empty when we turn back to him and repent. Paul uses the same word that that David uses, the same verse to encourage the church in Rome. In in Romans 4, uh, 8, 7 and 8, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count not his sin. God is not counting the sin against us because ultimately who paid the bill? Jesus Christ did. And he declares us righteous. He declares us righteous. Psalm 32 is at the heart of the gospel. God clears the ledger. He deletes the data on the spreadsheet of sin. My next takeaway is this. God offers forgiveness to all who will receive it. 
David identifies the person who receives this gift. He says, it's the person who has no deceit in their spirit. This word deceit has primarily not to do with me lying to others, but me lying to myself and to God. John in, in, ver, in 1 John 1.18 says, if we, have, have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So how do we lie to ourselves? We lie to ourselves when we diminish the reality that we too are sinners like those around us. Maybe, maybe it's not so much the lying to yourself, but maybe you have allowed pride to enter into your heart and so cloud your eyes from seeing the truth. The reality that, guess what, as Paul would put it, that you too are chief of sinners, that you too are at the top of the list of the most wanted list for the most corrupt thing you've ever done. You are no better than the rest. Or maybe you're sitting there deceiving yourself right now thinking, man, this psalm would be so good for my son to hear. This psalm is for you. This psalm is for me. But the blessing of forgiveness is for those who do not lie to themselves. We need to realize that everything is done in the eyes of God. And because God loves us, he will let us know that he sees it all. David continues in verse 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, my groan, through the groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Isn't this the perfect description of human misery when we feel the conviction of guilt and sin? Psychologically, David is saying, I am done with the wickedness in my life. I have felt this pain for way too long. You and I must get to that point and then turn back. Because then what David does is he doesn't stay in the misery. He says this in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Brothers and sisters, if God's hand is heavy on your conscience right now, you need to know that he loves you and wants you to turn back to him. We are stubborn, sinful, and sometimes God has to nudge us. Sometimes for me, he has to kick us to move us. To say, look, come see the reality. Come see the beauty of who I am and, and the wickedness that you have on you, but let me clean you up because you can't do it on your own. And because David experienced God's most powerful forgiveness, he then does something that you and I should learn to do. He teaches others. When was the last time you sat with your kids or your grandkids and said, look, I messed up, learn from this. Stop hiding Stop hiding away. Stop tucking it away and saying, look, you cannot see my past. You cannot know my past. Look, God has already forgiven you for that. Stop being ashamed of that. You have been set free from that. Let others know what God has set you free from. He says in verse 6 and 7, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You, God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. That phrase, let everyone who is godly, is the statement for every follower of God. People like David who fell short. And Paul reminds us what? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But he is saying the temptation is to stay silent. 
When you feel ashamed and angry, I get it, I've been there, but when you feel angry and ashamed, do not run away from God. Don't try to hide your face like our our old father and mother, Adam and Eve. Do not try to run and hide away, but rather turn back to him because guess what? He is the only one that can set you free. You need to call out to God while you can. Repent, confess, come back to God. Why? Because sin is so deceitful. And if you not, do not deal with it, it'll begin to harden your heart. And so you will no longer hear the voice of God. You will no longer be able to confront God because you won't care. But thank God he is a master surgeon and that he is not afraid of hardened hearts because he'll go in and take it out and give you his own heart. Oh, some of y'all need right now that heart. You need to understand the truth that God is willing to do this for you and for me. He says in verse 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. God has given to you and to me the Holy Spirit to help us walk in the way of righteousness. God promises to do this, to help us, to guide us. But then he also promises to keep his covenantal love for us. David in verse 10 says this, many are the sorrows of the wicked but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love is God's covenant and commitment to you and to me, to his people. He is like a father waiting for the prodigal son to return. He is ready to welcome you home always. That's who can receive the gift, those who will come back home. My last takeaway is simple. God understands the importance of this gift. You see, God didn't lower the standard of holiness. He found a way to make us holy that isn't dependent upon me, my performance. Grace wins. Instead, God became our co-sufferers. You see, the author of Hebrews says this, for we do not have a great high priest who cannot sympathize or empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. The Greek word for empathize is the compound word sympatheo, where we get sympathetic. It is a combination of two words, which means suffer with, to suffer with. It's where we use in our English word co. So if I literally translated this word, it literally means that Jesus, that God, that Jesus himself came to co-suffer with us. How does he deal with my sin? He suffers with me. He suffers the consequence of our thoughts, actions, and disordered desires. He suffers for us, for me, for you. And we can assume or have this intuitive assumption that that, that we are closest to God when things are going well. The writer of Hebrews says it's quite the opposite. God is closest to you in the most weakest moments of your life. Our hearts are corrupted by sin and they are like poles of magnet that are constantly trying to push and resist his grace, yet Jesus' heart is uncorrupted. It it works exactly the opposite way. He is drawn to us in our weakness. Jesus runs to us when we are weak because he wants to meet us there and tell us and show us his power. Not our power, but his. Dan Ortland, a Chicago area-based pastor and author, writes this. If you are in Christ, 
you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. Look, I understand. Confession is terrifying, but it is a gift. And that sounds like a contradiction, but listen to me. The alternative to running is the refusal to run. The idea of exposing ourselves to God is scary. I understand. That's the only way to open ourselves up to his unconditional love, though. Ever wonder what made David a man after God's own heart? Literally inscribed on his tombstone? A man who, who, if you read his bio, was a liar, a manipulator, an adulterer, maybe a rapist, depending on how you, you weigh the evidence, and a murderer? What made him a, a man after God's own heart? Simple, the Psalms. The Psalms are literally his, 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 his personal uh, a life confession peppered with honesty, unadulterated, raw nakedness before God saying, I am broken. Look at me. Forgive me because you are holy and I am not. This is why I believe that we as a church, as a body of believers, we need to become a confessional community that learns how to use confession as a tool. Confession teaches you and I how to excavate down into the layers of my life, uncovering not what's just obvious on the top of the surface, but what's been hidden deep down in my personal history. You see, one of the biggest mistakes we have made in the modern church is to reimagine spiritual maturity as a need to confess less. The unspoken assumption is this, I ascend in relationship with God if I confess less because I have less to confess. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie. True spiritual maturity is quite the opposite. It's not an ascension, it's an archeological dig as we discover layer after layer of what's been there. Spiritual maturity means confessing more, not less. Maturity is discovering the depth of my personal brand of fallenness and the depth of God's grace meshed together that has already beaten me there. The desperate need of our time is not for successful Christians, popular Christians, winsome Christians. It is for deep Christians. And the only way to become a deep Christian is through the inner excavation called confession. The pathway of spiritual maturity is a descent, not an ascent. A maturing community is a confessing community, not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. Oh, y'all didn't hear me. A, a, a spiritual church, a spiritual uh, mature community is a confessing community, not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. How do we combat that thought that is in our minds that has been planted since the day of the fall that keeps us in a perpetual state of hiding, of dressing myself up with fig leaves? I simple, confess, run to the Father. Let David's words inspire a holy imagination. Let it grip you and call you back to your knees and confess so that you may find freedom and healing. Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors, wrote this. Anyone God uses significantly is always deeply wounded. We are each and every one of us insignificant people whom God has called and graced to us in a significant, significant way. 
on the last days, Jesus will look over, not for medals and diplomas or honors, but for scars. It is not by our gifts, insights, ideas, or qualification that God is determined to heal the world, but by our scars. What does the word say? That by his scars, we were healed, and by our scars, the world will receive this healing. Forgiveness is a gift that sets you free and reminds you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I say this one last time. Forgiveness is a gift God wants to give you this Christmas season. Pray with me. Father, remind us of this truth, this reality, that we need you now more than ever. We need you in our hearts. We need you in our lives. We need you in every area. God, if there is someone who is here, whether they're a saint or a sinner, whether they find themselves living with you or living far from you, may they see this truth that you are offering them a gift. The gift of forgiveness. Not because they earned it or deserved it, but rather because you have done the great work on the cross. Remind us of this truth right now. And so God, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to worship you one more time. May you convict and break down the wall. And if there is anyone who has a hardened heart, Lord, may you come close and embrace them in the warmth of your embrace. Begin to make that hardened heart beat again. Thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at northridge.online.